I want to acknowledge the rights of women around the world that is an important step to unfolding the divine wisdom that comes through all of our different voices and our actions. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week, I speak with Daisy Khan about her own miraculous story growing up in Kashmir and an important call to action she felt here in the U.S. Daisy Khan is executive director of the Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality, WISE, W-I-S-E, a women-led organization committed to peacebuilding, equality, and justice for Muslims around the world. Her memoir, Born with Wings, was published by Random House in April of 2018. My grandfather was a self-taught scholar, had left Kashmir and had come all the way to America to pursue an education in engineering. And there at Harvard University, when he was asked by his professor to teach Islam, he said, well, I don't know anything about Islam. He said, well, why don't you go to the library? We have so many books. And so he went to the library and he discovered his love for Islam began at Harvard because he read all these books. And when he came back to Kashmir, he was an engineer, but by night he became a staunch scholar, a self-taught scholar. He loved to read and write books. We have a lot of little booklets that he's written for the family on, on all these topics of social justice and women and prayer. And, and so he knew his Islam and he came back home and he said, why is this house in mourning? Because he saw it like whole houses, like, you know, quiet. And they said, oh, Halima gave birth to a third daughter. So he rushed up and the story goes that he rushed up literally, you know, barged into the birthing room, which was not considered appropriate. So I was kind of left on the side to fend for myself because I was born premature at home and there was probably no likelihood that I would survive. And he asked for the child and he lifted me up in his cashmere shawl. I was dirty and everything. And he said, she is a gift from God. And I, I was put on his shoulder at all times. He made an example of me. He said, she will get the same education and she will be treated the same way as all other boys. By being empowered by the patriarch of the family and then being empowered by your father and being empowered by all, you know, all male members of your family, it shaped my worldview about who I was. It gave me confidence. Today, I have become the same as my grandfather. I am a self-taught scholar. I am writing books for the benefit of others. I literally did not even realize, but I'm following in his footsteps. He was such an exemplar. I had a professional career, but at the same time, I feel like I also want to serve God in my own way. And the best way to serve God is to take the message that God has sent us and share it with others. Because so many people need it today. The world is in desperate need of inspiration, connection to the divine, and we are losing it with all this confusion that we have in the world. So I feel that if I can even touch one life or one person, from my work, then I've done my good deed for the day. And I hope God will be pleased with me. There are people working for women's rights in various ways, in various areas all around the world, but you are connecting yours to Islam. And I'm wondering, have you always had this firm connection that God was there and that there was a purpose for you in the sight of God? 
I think it all started with when I was a child, I was nine years old. I had gone to my saintly grandmother, my mother's mother. I was visiting her. She was in prayer, constant prayer and vigilance at all times. She was literally a saint. And I would always see her in prayer. And uh, I slept in her lap and I had a dream, a, a dream that was outside the realm of anybody's understanding. And I woke up and all I said to her was, I saw God in my dream. And she said, what was what was it like? She came from a spiritual tradition called Sufism and dreams are meant to be an inspiration from God, especially true dreams that have a spiritual nature to them. So I described to her how I was in this tunnel of light and the light was cascading and I was just a little little thing at the bottom of the light and the light was inviting me. And so she knew that I had been touched by the divine and she had me blessed the next day, brought 40 people from all over the neighborhood, poor people, gave charity in my name. And that moment of seeing those people who had no teeth, who had tattered clothes praying for me, I feel that at that point I was blessed. I was blessed by a group of people. And I that connection with God, I am convinced that I have a purpose that I have been put here for. I'm not just here leading my life in worldly affairs. Of course, we have to do that because we need to earn a living, we need to do all this. But I feel like I also have a mandate that has been thrust upon me that I must live up to, and that is doing God's work. You know, sometimes uh, sometimes we don't really discover who we are until we're moved out of the place that we grew up in and land in a different place and then have to discover how much of what I do was the culture and how much is motivated by what is in me. Did you discover that when you came to the U.S.? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would have pursued all these had I not been challenged with challenges and with uh, pressures, external pressures, we grow. We grow as a human being because because we are challenged and we, we rise up. And so in America, first, you know, I came here in the 70s and the first thing I saw was the Iranian revolution. Mm. And I was a solo Muslim who had to be confronted with explaining to people why everybody was chanting death to America and oh, why black chadurs and nothing has, you know, 40 years later, nothing, nothing seems to have changed, right? We're back to the same revolution again, only it's a counter revolution now. Mm. So I'm watching this whole thing as, as if it was being uh, the same way that it was being played out in my mind, but I was very young. I was vulnerable. I didn't know how to answer these questions. And I wrote my first protest letter in Newsday, you know, from my college campus, because everybody was asking me, being the only solo Muslim, what does it all mean? And I didn't have the answers. So this is what I mean by when you are pressured from external pressures, you have to grow. So I began to study on my own. First, I read my grandfather's book because I was looking for answers. Then I started looking at other books to see what, you know, how I could answer these questions. And that fast forward brought me to 9-11 when we had to experience that tragedy of 9-11 and our faith was connected to it. That became deeply personal. Yes. And I, I remember my ex-husband Mosque was literally in that proximity and he was, there was a demand on him to speak. And one day I accidentally double booked him in a synagogue in a church. And so he said to me, he said, you go to the church, I'll go to the synagogue. And I said, yes, but I've never spoken publicly about Islam. And he goes, you know, just repeat what I said. 
so I had heard him speak many times and I went to this little church. It was in Princeton. People asked me all the same questions that every American was asking Muslims. Why is Islam not peaceful or uh, the status of women and, you know, democracy and Islam? The same frequently asked questions were being peppered at me and I was answering them. And then there was this little old lady. <laughs> I call her the little old lady, but God does not speak to you directly. God usually <laughs> speaks to you through other people, right? Uh-huh. So God spoke through this woman and this woman asked me that profound question about women's rights. And I rattled off how Muslim women had received all these rights in seventh century, the right to divorce, the right to freely marry, the right to own property, the right to wealth, the right to education. And she said, yes, but what about Afghanistan? Can you explain to me why these things are happening in Afghanistan? I was not equipped because I was not doing women's advocacy work at that time. I didn't know how to answer that question. And then she said to me, well, I just want to know what you're doing about a deer. And that question, what are you doing about it, dear, stayed with me for a good year. As I was traveling back and forth to corporate America, giving all my energy to corporate America, and I thought to myself, corporate America doesn't need me. My community needs me desperately. They need my talent, my skill. And so I had to quit my corporate career and dedicate myself full-time to community service. And that's how it all happened. So... Today, I'm doing this work. If I think back, would I have then done this work in Kashmir? And I look at my girlfriends that I went to school with, they're not doing any of this work because they don't have the external pressure. And I do. And I have to step up. So yes, thank America for that. (laughs) So as you look at the mission of the Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality, do you have a few stated goals, things that that you will know that you have achieved what you're trying to do if they happen. I want to acknowledge the rights of women around the world that is an important step to unfolding the divine wisdom that comes through all of our different voices and our actions. I want the divine wisdom to be the main driver of what we are doing and not relegate ourselves to small little power plays and power dynamics. And that is what we have to fight against. And I think that we have to rise up and bring that sacredness that exists in all of us up to the fore to bring that divine wisdom out into the world and and help raise people up to that consciousness. I, I just want to raise the consciousness of people through my work. And this is why my work has to go very deep into the tradition and into the substrate of how humans were created and for what purpose we were created. And that is why I go deep and excavate into the scriptures. And then I find these pearls of wisdom, (laughs) these Mm. little little pearls, these gems that exist in, in, in our scriptures. And, you know, and I go, Oh my God, I, I had no idea, you know, I mean, the description of creation in the Quran is so explicit and so beautifully told the story. Like if you look at a mountain, it's not just a mountain. God describes a mountain as a stake that he put into the ground to hold the ground together. That's how mountains are described. Mm. The sky is not just sky. The God says the sky is your canopy. It's a canopy which gives you shade 
I mean, I've created the, this, the, the waters, they have their purpose. So the waters are there so ships can sail. The animals are there so you can have some food to eat. The mineral vegetation is there so you can feed yourself. So all of these things have a purpose. This is not just created for nothing. Well, you may have already just answered part of my next question, which is, what are the things that connect you to God? You've you've mentioned the actual earth around us now. Are there other personal practices that tie you into God? Does your work do that? Well, I think that, you know, the work that I'm doing connects me to God because I know that that is the purpose of my life is the short span that I have left, I must achieve certain things because these things have to be done by certain people. And we all feel that there is a mandate that is thrust upon us to achieve certain things, right? We, we're not going to live forever. So we only have so many years. And so that it definitely is, is a connection because I feel that I'm doing God's work and I got to do it quickly because time's going to run out. <laughs> My time's going to run out. Of course, the other one is I am... I'm a deeply spiritual person, always have been. So I see I see God in many ways. I, I'm, I'm a dreamer. I see a lot of dreams. I, I mean, I'm always instructed in my dreams what to do, what not to do, the actions to take. And then, of course, nature itself. But also another way to look at God is to see God's light in all human beings. I mean, this mm-hmm. is I've done a lot of interfaith work and I'm a committed interfaith advocate because I see the spark of the divine in all 7 billion of us. And that's what connects me to, to all human beings that are different than me. And it's easier than to embrace diversity because diversity is not just something that the state told you to do or the government told you to do or corporate America tells you to do, but really it's a part of the divine mandate. God says in the Quran, I've created you into nations and tribes so you may get to know one another. So diversity is part of God's plan and embracing and acknowledging and respecting diversity is then respecting God's plan. Because of your gifts as a writer, some of your work, once it's put in a book, goes out and does its own work even without you. I'm wondering if briefly you could just tell me experiences or responses you've had from women in Islam or out who have read the book and reported back what their thinking or the effect that it had on them was. My work often gets taken and used by activists in their own communities. So I'll give you an example of a woman that I worked with in Afghanistan. She's a dear friend now. Uh, When we were trying to promote women's rights within the most influential sector of society, which were the imams. So we brought this plan together of the five rights that we knew women were struggling with child marriage, uh, property rights uh, or inheritance rights, uh, social mobility, divorce and a couple, couple of others. The research that I already had from my books was put together in the form of a training. So we brought these imams together. She brought the imams together. I worked with her closely and did some um, uh, workshops around each of these topics. And then we asked the imams if once they had learned this, uh, first, they were a little shocked because they we realized that they were fairly illiterate about the subject 
you know, especially subject of women, because oftentimes in some of these theological schools, they kind of bypass women altogether. So they don't even talk about women. Like in Hagar, nobody would talk about Hagar. Everybody would talk about Abraham. Mm. It was her courage and conviction that gave us Mecca, right? So, uh, so, so we don't discuss it that way. We only discuss what he did. And of course, he's an important prophet and he's a prophet of God. So we have to respect and honor him. But we should also talk about a woman's conviction and her bravery. So in this, in this book, we talked about these other women and the role that women have played. And these imams were like truly stunned. They couldn't believe that they were reading the stuff. You know, they were like really moved by having yeah, inspired by some of the knowledge that we put in front of them. Then we asked them if they could kindly go and do a sermon on this topic. So one of the imams went and he did a sermon on child marriage. And he said to his congregation, why do we do this to our daughters? Why do we sell our daughters? Why do we, you know, create so much pain by marrying them off at such a young age? And and a very passionate, passionate uh, sermon. And the people listening in the room were so stunned because they'd never heard an imam talk about this stuff before. And one of the guys who was an old guy was sitting in the corner. He got up and he shook the imam by his collar and he said, why are you saying this to us now? I've married all my three daughters like this. I married one off to her cousin, forcibly married her. Another one I sold for a bright price. And the third one is almost in depression. So the guy was so, so upset and angry that the imam looked at him and said, I know it's too late for you, but it's not too late for all the other people in the room. Mm. And we have so many stories that we have heard that have become a result of providing actual authentic knowledge to people. And what is missing right now is, you know, the kind level of literacy that people need so they can rise up and make some corrections or correct the course or get inspired to fight for their own rights. So my latest book is meant to be a tool against oppression and a shield against injustice. And that's how, that's what my work does. For me, it's a beautiful set of bookends of you venturing out for your very first time to speak and be asked, what are you doing about Afghanistan? And then you've just told me, if you could have imagined, well, I'll write a book. <laughs> I, I, I don't imagine that was in your head at the time. And yet you have done something about it. Well, so every time I get a question, I think that this is coming from from God you know, it's like it's like a message from God. OK, so Daisy, you need to step up and do something more now because I freed you from all these other responsibilities. You know, you're dedicated to me and I need you to do this for me because um, people are busy. There are scholars writing fantastic books and oftentimes scholars write scholarly books, but it's not accessible to the lay audience. So what I do is I curate the best material that is out there and I make it accessible to the activist, to the lay person who desperately needs this information. So the latest book that I'm writing, it literally started with Afghanistan. And then over time, there was so much demand for all other rights, like female gentle mutilation or child marriage or forced marriage or adoption and all these topics that keep coming up and they bubble up to me <laughs> oftentimes. Well, what is, what is the answer to this? 
child trafficking is a very big issue in Afghanistan right now because because people don't have enough food to take care of their children. So they literally sell their children so they can feed the other children in the home. And I've seen this because I've just been to Afghanistan in April myself. So, but is child trafficking, you know, a violation of women's rights? Absolutely. You are stripping a child from their mother and you're stripping the child away from the mother. So it is a woman's right issue. It is a child right issue. All of these rights, because they keep coming up, um, I said, okay, I have to then write a response to it. I have to write it in a way that will empower not only the men in my community, the religious leaders in my community, but also the women in my community, also my interfaith allies, because my interfaith allies also want this information. You know, they are they are my best allies. They will speak for me, but they need this information in their hands so they can talk about it. Um, and at the end of the day, when I write, they see in my writing answers to some of the questions that they are seeking within their own faith as well, because we learn from one another. And so this is the reason why these books get put together is because there's a need for them. So I'm not writing the books because I feel like I need to write another book. I'm writing it in response to a problem that I'm trying to solve. You know, I think that this book is going to be very, very handy for, for women in general. It's going to be very interesting to women in general because they will be able to see, you know, within their own faith traditions, a lot of similarities. And Judaism is an is, is a religion of law, as you know, and Islam has a very strong jurisprudence that's connected to Jew, Jewish jurisprudence. So Jewish women will really enjoy reading it because they have a conservative orthodoxy within them. And sometimes they struggle for the same things that Muslim women are struggling with. And of course, with Christian women, there are a lot of stories that are also found in the Bible uh, that, are, that are in the book. Do you see change or progress in these these schools of lawmaking or jurisprudence that make room for women's involvement in religious community? I think that there are baby steps going on, but sometimes I find that, for instance, my table is full of books right now, and many of them have been written by women scholars, and they are breakthrough books. They have the exegesis, you know, they go back to the roots of when did this verse come about? What does it actually mean? What is its grammar? What's its syntax? So these scholars have written breakthrough uh, breakthrough books, but oftentimes they don't make it into the public consciousness because our, the systems that we had in place, you know, where uh, things would juridically then get restated or become law, because we are nation states now and religion is playing not such an important role or is is not playing a role at all. So these laws never make it into the national body of laws. They never get legislated accordingly. So this is my struggle, for instance, in Afghanistan, where I've just come back from, the Taliban wants to have a constitution that is based on an Islamic legal framework. But they're denying girls an education, which is the, one of the first fundamental rights hmm. uh, in Islam. Such a contradiction. It's a complete contradiction, and it makes no sense whatsoever. But their constitution does does not legislate education. So, in order to create an Islamic, you know, is, Islamically based framework of a constitution, it would require great minds to come together to do that. Right. But there's no will. There's no political will to do that. There are enough scholars to help. 
but there isn't a political will because they want to create a nation in their own image, mm. which is a very limited understanding of women. You know, they want to relegate women to the side and have a, you know, a society that is run by men for men and women are just like the sideshow. This is the struggle that we have. So books can, I'm hoping that, you know, my book, which which they're aware that I'm writing this book, is meant to empower the women themselves. So women can then challenge it at the local level and they can fight for their rights at their local level. And because the one thing that Muslims do respect is the highest authority in Islam is the Quran. And if you can cite the Quran and you can cite a verse and then you can buttress this with what the prophet said, that's usually an argument that goes a long way rather than an argument of a secular human rights framework. Well, I'd love to end with what I think is the perfect image for what you do, which is the pair of red boxing gloves. Could you tell us this story? Yeah, so when I was a little girl, being the third daughter, I think I had been bullied by somebody and I was standing in my um, you know, front lawn, kind of like upset. And my dad came to me and he was dangling these pair of boxing gloves in front of me. And and so <clears throat> I uh, this this was a, just a memory. And years later, I asked my dad if he had ever given me a pair of boxing gloves. He said, yes, I did. And I said, why? He said, because you were the third of three daughters and somebody had bullied you and I wanted you to learn how to defend yourself. And uh, and if necessary, you know, knock them out. So um, <laughs> this, this is the world I came into. I uh, treasured these boxing gloves. Um, they're, I don't actually walk around with boxing gloves, but they're invisible boxing gloves that I feel that every once in a while I have to step into the arena of the big fight. And the boxing gloves are just a metaphor yeah. that to fight many fights we have many struggles and sometimes it's worth getting into the ring uh, because if you really believe in something it's worth for you to get into the ring and do the big fight so my books have become my boxing gloves now <laughs> that's how i consider this is the latest set of my boxing gloves and these are also my wings uh the the wings are are your strength that's what takes you far that's where you can reach your destination. So you need wings and we have to discover what our wings are because we're all being created with wings. None of us have been created without wings with the same faculties. And we just have to discover what they are, what that strength is that'll, that's going to take us not only on our full journey, but on our destination. And so my wings, ironically, have become my books because they take me far so between the wings and the boxing gloves, I think I'm, I'm set. Thanks again to Daisy Khan for speaking with us. Her next book is 30 Rights of Muslim Women. You can find out more at wisemuslimwomen.org. This episode was produced by Austin Ball, edited by Heather Bigley. Thanks to Peter Ellison for engineering and Daniel Phillips for sound design. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That really does help spread the word and create awareness. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at InGoodFaithPod 
And our Facebook page is at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.